0: Tempted and tried, pressured and persecuted, sad and shamed. That's the situation of these people. And what word would you give to such people? Well, the last book in the Bible is for those kinds of people. Would you please turn to the last book in the Christian Bible? This is our third message in the book of Revelation. Revelation might be helpful to go back and listen to the first two as we've shared some strategies and perspectives for making friends with this book. My understanding is from a few of you, a number of you, that the podcast feed is not working anymore, uh, but you can go back to sermonaudio.com. You can go all the way back to 2005 and catch up on anything that you missed, especially the last few messages if that's a help to you. At the beginning of last week's sermon, I introduced us to seven different friends all struggling to hold on to Christ at different levels. That, of course, is precisely the kind of person the book of Revelation is meant for. Those friends who are confused about what it means to believe in Jesus, or confused about what it means about believing in Jesus, the effect it should have on our behavior and living for Jesus. Only now you know that those seven friends represented seven churches to whom John, the author of Revelation, writes. That's the audience of this book. Revelation is written to local churches, not to individuals who are wondering if they would be left behind. But by introducing the audience of Revelation as friends, it puts a personal touch, a point on Revelation. It helps us think of certain friends that we have who are tried and tempted. But more than that, it helps all of us friends think of our own hearts and of our own church. That God commissions John to write to these seven churches who are pressured and persecuted. Churches who are tired and who are tempted, who are sad and who are shamed. And in this book, God gives such churches a revelation. Not a revelation, remember, of when, but a revelation of who. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Think of that. That God loves local churches so much That he gives us 22 chapters at the end of the Bible for people who think they might be at the end of their faith. 22 chapters. That's the aim of the book. The entire aim of the book is not a call to look down, but to look up. It's not a call to give in, but to hold on, to listen to the Lamb until the very end. That's one of the last commands of the book. Not the last one, but one of the last commands. And the last chapter sums the whole book up, and here it is, worship God. In this book, John refers to Jesus, his person and his work, using the image of a lamb more than any other image that he uses. So last week, by way of review, we attempted to summarize this message of Revelation as urgent encouragements and warnings to worship the lamb and hold fast to his words. That's the aim of the book. It's an it's an it's it's a call to listen to the lamb, to love the lamb. By the spirit through John, God is giving us a message that comes to us from Christ, an urgent encouragement, urgent warnings to worship the lamb and keep his word. The book even opens in chapter 1 and it closes in chapter 2 with a blessing. If you're in Revelation 1, would you look down at verse 3? Revelation 1.3, what is the blessing that begins and ends this book? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who are hearing and who are keeping what is written, for the time is near. John then doesn't have a prophetic point so much as he has a pastoral point. He wants to help us worship the Lamb until the end and warn us what will happen if we don't. And because of the temptation and struggle that we all have as followers of Christ, one temptation we all have, whether you're religious or you're not religious, whether you see yourself as Christian or not, the one temptation that's common to every human being is worship. I don't know if you've thought of that, but we all struggle with worshiping something else instead of God or worshiping something else along with God. Beneath all of our problems in life, beneath all of our anxieties and our anger, is a worship war. Beneath all of our troubles and struggles is a struggle with worship, a war fueled by the desires of our heart and by the dragon of Revelation 12. That's how the Bible defines sin. It's a problem of worship. Sin is not so much about being good little boys and girls versus being bad little boys and girls. Sin in the Bible is far deeper than that, far more pervasive than that. Sin in the Bible is giving something or someone more value than God. Are giving something or someone equal value to God. You may not deny Him, but you worship something along with Him. Beneath all of our troubles and struggles is a war of worship. Now, few of us would say so boldly, few of us would say, I worship my emotions. Few of us would say, I worship my work ethic. Few of us realize that with our lives, we're actually saying, I worship my feelings. I worship how people view me. I worship control. But our anger and our fears, our highs and our lows, show us that. If you took the time to look, if we took the time to look beneath our anger, beneath our lows and our highs, if you took time to look behind your shame and your pride, it'd show you who or what you worship. And everyone one us struggles to worship something instead of God or along with God. That's ultimately why churches give in and why people give in. So now here comes a book at the end of the Bible with the aim of encouraging churches at the end of their faith to worship the lamb alone and keep his word until the end. Why? Because blessed is the one who hears and heeds the words of the lamb. Yeah. That's what I want to talk to us this morning from Revelation 1. Reasons to worship the Lamb and keep His Word. Reasons to hear and heed God's Word. The hearing and heeding comes from the language of verse 3. Reasons to hear and heed God's Word. Now we're just going to focus on two this morning. Two encouragements to hear and heed God's Word. You can tell from the order of worship, we're supposed to be done with chapter 1 this morning. I got through verse 5 uh, last night. I'm frustrated, I'm not farther, but here's where we are. So we're just looking at two verses this morning, and here are the two reasons that I'll give to you, and then we'll think about this morning. The promise of Trinitarian favor encourages us to hear and heed God's word in the face of suffering. The promise of Trinitarian favor does that, and here's the second reason. The promise of Trinitarian presence encourages us to hear and heed God's word in the face of suffering. We all need something in the face of suffering. We need to hear and heed God's word. Well, what encouragements do you have for me? The promise of Trinitarian favor and the promise of Trinitarian presence. Those are the two points. We're going to focus on verses 4 and 5, but let's read down to verse 8 for context to remind us again of where we are. Revelation 1, verse 1. Here is what Holy Scripture says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known. He signified it by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who is loving us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom. priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, John issues to us and Verse 3, a promissory note banked, backed by the treasuries of heaven. Blessed is the one who keeps my word. What follows then in this chapter are reasons and a revelation to hear and heed God's word. So two reasons this morning and next week, Lord willing, two more reasons and a revelation. But before we look at two Trinitarian reasons to hear and heed God's word, let's recall the design of revelation from the previous weeks. First, God intends to make himself known in this book. Second, the Holy Spirit, according to verse 9, designed this book as a revelation of Christ, an unveiling of Christ, and an unveiling by Christ. Third, the design of apocalyptic literature is to communicate through symbolic images, people, places, and numbers, and those symbols are rooted in previous parts of the Bible. And as those symbols move in, in this last book of the Bible, they intensify and adapt as they move along to the story of the Bible and come to a conclusion here. Well, today, here's the fourth thing we need to know about the design of this type of literature that is Revelation. And here it is. John not only roots his images in the Old Testament, but he roots his phrases, his wording in the Old Testament. John roots his phrases and words and the words and phrases of the Old Testament. Now, what that means is, is that Revelation is full of Old Testament allusions. And the way you understand Revelation is once again by reading the Old Testament. I think that Revelation only has one direct quotation from another part of the Bible, but it has anywhere from 400 to 600 allusions. We have cross-cross references in our English Bible, footnotes in our Bibles. Well, so do copies of our Greek New Testaments. And some of those textual apparatuses count over 635 allusions or Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. So think, think of the quantity of allusions in this last book of the Bible like this. There are some 400 verses in the book of Revelation. About 300 of them contain references to the Old Testament. So how does knowing that John roots his phrases in the Old Testament help us grasp God's intended meaning of this book? Because it forces us to look at previous parts of the Bible to understand what God means in this part of the Bible. As with the symbols and images and animals and beasts in Revelation, the key to understanding the wording, even that we'll see this morning, the key is not the field of our imagination or the newspaper page. But the key is the Old Testament text itself that controls the images that God, that John is using under inspiration of the Spirit. Now we know that context is always important in understanding a passage. Historical context invites us to consider the author and audience of the book, which we've done. Literary context plays a role. What comes before a passage in a chapter, what comes before and after it in a book, what comes before and after it in that part of the Bible, and then the whole Bible. Well, biblical context is where allusions fit in. And with allusions, you're asking this. How does this passage of the Bible quote or allude to other parts of the Bible that might come before it or after it? That's biblical context. Does this passage of the Bible I'm looking at, does it quote or allude to other parts of the Bible before and after? So when you study the passage, a passage, any passage, any book, you can at ask at least two questions. How does my passage use the Bible and how do other parts of the Bible use my passage? Well, located at the end of the Bible, there are no other passages in the Bible that are going to quote from Revelation. But as Revelation comes at the end of the Bible, what do you think Revelation is going to do as it sums up the entire storyline of the Bible? If all roads lead to Rome, all roads of the Bible lead to Revelation. It's full of illusions, full of references in this way. And what is an illusion to get our mind around that? An illusion is not something that reminds me as the reader of something in the Bible. An illusion is a brief expression intended by the author drawn from another part of the Bible. So if you know the Old Testament, when you hear an illusion repeated in Revelation, it will have a powerful concluding effect on what John is saying. Can I give you an example of an illusion and how they work from pop culture? It just happened the other day. The Rocky movies were hit films in the 70s and 80s, starring Sylvester Stallone. They were so successful and iconic, they now have a spin-off series into its seventh episode, a parallel film series known as Creed 1, 2, and 3. And, of course, they're based off of the son of one of Rocky's arch enemies who turned his coach, Apollo Creed, the actor just died recently, who played Apollo Creed. Well, as Creed three, the movie, comes to an end, as you would expect... Now, you know what's coming, but you watch it anyway. As Creed comes to an end, and Creed wins in the 12th round with the last punch. Of course, that's how he was going to... You don't watch for the last punch. You watch for the struggle until the very end. But as the fighter falls to the mat in defeat a subtle surprise happens. As the boxer falls to the mat and he's being counted out, as he gets to 10, the background music of the fight subtly shifts to play. And then it goes back to whatever was playing before. And I said to my son, did you hear that? And he said, did I hear what? And I said... Did you hear that music? What music? They just played a few notes from the very first movie of Rocky as that dude hit the mat. Now, the first movie Rocky was done in 1976. Creed 3 came out in 2023. 47 years after the first film, after that theme was first played at the end of Rocky One, the screenwriters of Creed Three played a few notes from that first Rocky movie. movie, What was happening? At the end of Creed Three, with a subtle playing of just a few notes from a 47-year-old theme, they were alluding to everything that had come before in the story. It was a musical illusion, a brief melody tying all of the film series together, saying that the victory you just saw was just like the victories that have come before and all of these rocky series. That's how illusions work. They're short. They're intentional. They're like a few musical notes, a brief literary expression borrowing what came before. Classical composers, too. We'd call it plagiarizing, but Beethoven would play a few notes and say, I see you, composer, who came before me. I see you, and I tip my hat. That's how illusions work. And in Revelation, it comes not 47 years after Genesis was written, but thousands year after, and as it does, it brims now. It overflows with previous illusions, short bursts of redemptive melodic themes that tie all of the Bible together as it all wraps up. Now, I could ask, why didn't my son catch the subtle, melodic illusion? Because he's not as familiar. He hasn't seen Rocky as many times as I have, for good or for bad. <laughs> now, what's the point? We miss illusions in the Bible and in Revelation because we were not as familiar with the Old Testament as we can be. So read the Bible. Read all of it. Read it again. All of it. So an allusion is a brief passage intended by the author drawn from notes from previous parts of the Bible. And when you realize it, it has a powerful concluding underlining effect. Now with all that in mind, I want to move forward to look at verses 4 and 5 this morning. I gave us that fourth that tool so that as we move on in Revelation we won't stop at every point and have to make that point. I'm not trying to bore you, But now for churches who are struggling to give up, for churches' pressure to give in, John is going to give us true, two Trinitarian reasons to hear and heed God's word that are full of biblical allusions. And here's the first reason. In the face of suffering, the promise of Trinitarian favor encourages us to hear and heed God's word. How can I keep going? I want you to think of Trinitarian favor. Where is that in the text? Would you look at verses 4 and 5 with me? John promises in verses 4 and 5, he promises something from someone. What's the something in verse 4? He promises grace and peace. And who's the someone this grace and peace comes from? Grace and peace from the Godhead, the Trinity. At the beginning of verse 4, grace and peace first from him who is and who was And is to come. That's grace and peace from God. Well, how do we know for sure this is God? Well, look down at verse eight. Here we have one of only two direct quotations from God in Revelation. I am verse eight, the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So this description in verse 8 matches the one in verse 4 which tells me that not only do books have top entails, inclusios, but smaller passages of the Bible do as well. So we know that verses 4 to 8 form an entire unit of thought because of how it begins and how it ends. It starts with the promise of grace from God in verse 4 and then by the, verse 8 we return to tonic. We return where we began with another reminder of God. And in between verses 4 and verse 8 then, John surrounds us with the Trinitarian bear hug of God's favor and God's power. Grace and peace from God, the one who is, was, and is to come, and grace and peace from the Almighty One. That's what you need to know as I start to write this book to you, churches who suffer. You are surrounded between God Almighty and the one who always has been. But not only do those presser presser churches get a promise of grace and peace from God, but from someone else. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ. And not only grace and peace from God and from Christ, but now look at the end of verse 4 I skipped over. Grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his God's throne. Now, who is this? Well, let me ask you, if grace and peace are coming from God at the beginning of verse four and grace and peace are coming from Christ in verse five, who might it be that grace and peace is coming to at the end of verse four? Well, the Holy Spirit, the immediate context is pointing to the Holy Spirit. Moreover, if John is promising grace and peace from God in Christ then who's the only other person that can be promising grace and peace except for the Holy Spirit? That is, in the Bible, it never says grace and peace to you from God, Jesus, and Paul. Let me throw my name in there too. Uh, Grace and peace to you from God, Jesus, and the angels. No, the near context and the promise itself tells us, I think, that this must be a reference to the Holy Spirit. But why seven spirits? Why not just say spirits, the Holy Spirit? Well, now remember, this isn't, this isn't an epistle. This is apocalyptic literature, and apocalyptic literature loves to use symbols, including numbers. So referring to seven spirits is a feature of the literary genre. What does seven mean? Well, it refers, as we saw last week, to completion and perfection, the seven days of creation. This then is the sevenfold Spirit of God, full of power and wisdom. Power, because in the Bible, the Holy Spirit falls on prophets and on Christ himself, empowering him for mission. And wisdom? Why did I say wisdom? Well, in Revelation 5, verse 6, Jesus is described as the Lamb with seven eyes, and those seven eyes, John says, Are the seven Spirits. Well if you have seven eyes. You can see everything. If you have seven eyes. You have perfect knowledge. Perfect sight. Perfect discernment. So here then. Here then is a promise of grace. From the all perfect. And all wise Holy Spirit. Whose wisdom and power are so full and complete. That John says. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. Now. We can also use something else to underline the identification of who the spirit is and see the significance for why he uses it here. It's now from biblical allusion. We could turn to a passage in Zechariah, but I want to call to our attention Isaiah 11. Would you turn to Isaiah 11, 1 and 2? We looked at this passage in our Advent series as we worked through Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. And as we did, I thought, this is Revelation 1. You tell me. In Isaiah, God makes a messianic promise that a descendant of David, a tiny twig, is going to shoot forth from the stump of Jesse. And when that happens, the 7 Spirit of God is going to rest on God's Messiah. Isaiah 11:1, Then shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and now listen to seven things about the Spirit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So now back to Revelation. As John seeks now to encourage us to hear God's word, he describes the Holy Spirit in such a way to remind them that they have the promise of grace and peace coming from the Spirit of God in all of his sevenfold fullness, who comes with divine essence and wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. What you need, seven churches, is yours in the full Holy Spirit who rested on the Messiah in all of his fullness, and now that Spirit who rested on the Messiah is now holding nothing back as he rests on you. The seven spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of God who rested on the divinic Messiah is now promising grace and peace to you. Here's the first reason you can hear and heed the word of God as you suffer because the promise of Trinitarian favor. In other words, beloved, the members of the Godhead are in league for our salvation and our endurance. Our persevering attachment to Christ and his words are not finally dependent on us, but on the grace and peace that come to us from the Godhead, from the Trinity. Now, why grace and peace? Well, we might think of grace and peace kind of as an overlooking, excusing. We might excuse grace in here for mercy. You know, you turned in your paper late and the teacher gives you grace. They excused it this time. They overlooked your tardiness. But that's not grace in the Bible. This promise of Trinitarian favor, God is not promising to let us off the hook, to give us a do-over if we unbelieve, or to give you a mulligan. Don't sweat it, seven churches. I've got grace for you. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. Absolutely. And God's unearned grace and undeserved favor always leads to our holiness, not to our laziness. God did not save us by grace to sit on our sanctified seat and sin and fall away. So he would put his arm around us and sympathize us as we fall away. He saved us for holiness. He saved the believers of these seven churches in Revelation by a grace unearned. A grace that also enables them to live for him even in the face of pressure. What you need, I'm giving to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are saying together. Paul speaks of grace in this way in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, God is able to make all grace do what? overflow to you, when? In all times, in all situations, for what purpose? So that you would overflow in every good work. Do you hear the connection of God's grace and our work? God makes all grace abound to you so that you can abound in every good work. We We need a reminder when we suffer and we feel worn out that the Trinitarian promise is unearned favor that leads to divine empowerment, especially in the face of suffering. But not only grace, but peace. And in the flow of the Bible, we're talking primarily about objective peace, not felt peace, which is what you use when you want to break up with somebody. I just don't have peace about it anymore. That's not the most important way the Bible talks about peace. And we have to be careful because without realizing it, In our world that privileges feelings and emotions above everything, it's not simply, our culture doesn't simply say feelings and emotions are important. That's true. What our culture says is that feelings and emotions are the most important authority and guideline you can have in your life. So in our culture that prioritizes feelings, we can think that peace is a feeling. But the Bible is speaking of an objective peace. That all is as it should be because what needs to be taken care of has been taken care of. We have peace with God, Paul says, by his blood. As you read Revelation, the way peace comes to us in this book is not by trusting in our work. Not by trusting in a mental state we arrive at, by self-care exercises and yoga but a peace that comes according to Revelation 5 by the blood of the Lamb standing as if he has just been slain. You know you're right with God, not by works, but by his work. And if you know you're right with God by his work, by the blood of the Lamb, that you can have objective peace even when you don't have subjective peace. And the way to work on the subjective peace is not to work on this, but it's to meditate on this. So be careful. Be careful because you can have subjective peace. You can feel as if all is well and not really have objective peace. You ever been pulled over for speeding on a sunny day and you're having the best day of their life? Maybe you got your sunroof open and your window's down and nobody hears you. It's like the shower and you're singing your jam and you got your jam on and you are singing. And then you get pulled over. And What happened? The subjective feeling of peace did not match the objective reality that you were going 30 over the speed limit. You felt great, but you were breaking the law. Or you go to the doctor and you feel fine, but you come out with a life-changing diagnosis. What happened? Our subjective peace wasn't matching objective reality of peace. Friends, the world is full. Malden is full of people who think that they are okay, but they're not okay. They have a subjective peace rooted in something, but it's not rooted in anything that's objective. Is that you? Could it be you? You're not right with God, but you actually think that you are. Be careful, friends, of a counterfeit peace that the church, that, that, that the Roman state is offering citizens to give in with. Don't, don't get in for that peace. But the Godhead, the Trinitarian promises an objective peace even when you don't have subjective peace. He promises a peace, a rock solid peace that all is well. Even as you suffer slander for believing what the Bible says about gender because you're right with God by grace alone. You can have, you do have objective peace when you don't have subjective peace. And the way you work on subjective peace is getting your heart and head into the objective peace that's been won for you by the blood of the lamb. By the grace and favor that's yours. And the order of this greeting of grace and peace is important. Because one 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 textual critic says that grace and peace stand in this order because it's because of God's grace first that people can enjoy peace. You need God's unmerited favor that you can't earn before you can have any objective peace with God. Do you see these churches need in the face of of pressure. They need divine, they need divine favor and power and they need divine peace. They need, they need, in the face of pressure, they need the promise of divine favor. They need a promise of divine power because that's the end of theirs. They need the promise of peace because they're fighting's within their soul and the fury of hell around their soul and the gracious favor and the power and the peace they need that God had promises to them. So more than a casual greeting, Writes one, this opening is bestowing what it's proclaiming, grace and peace to you. As John Newton's friend, William Cooper wrote, Cooper himself was assaulted in his spirit with guilt of a sin, and he battled mental health issues that he had a history of in his family. And Cooper wrote of God's peace like this. So strife with earth and hell begins. Will let them in horrid league agree. They may assault, they may distress, but cannot quench thy love to me, nor rob me of the Lord my peace. Amen. That's how this opening is supposed to work. You can hear and heed God's word as you suffer because of the promise of Trinitarian favor, that what he commands, he provides grace And peace. But now let's make another pass at this Trinitarian promise meant to encourage us. And here's the second pass. The second reason that you can hear and heed in the face of suffering is because of the promise of Trinitarian presence. Think with me for a moment. Here's what we're going to do the next several moments. How John moved by the Holy Spirit takes time to describe each person of the Godhead, and he does so as a way to encourage our faith and our hope. He means by taking time and describing each person of the Godhead, what John is doing, he wants to steal our faith. He wants to straighten our backbone. He wants to put grit in your stomach and hope in your heart so that in the face of pressure, you won't give in. Because first, the presence of God, namely God the Father, verse 4, who's described as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, at one level, this expression reveals to us about God who is who is eternally ancient, who's unchangeably present and imminently returning. For he is the one who was. He's eternally ancient. He's the one who is, who is unchangeably present, and he's the one who is to come, who's imminently returning, meaning every moment of our lives, past, present, and future, is filled with the sovereign, ancient, unchangeable, imminent present and person of God. What a lovely chord of divine assurance these three notes of God's character make. Who was, who is, And who is to come. But did you notice beloved that from a time perspective John puts them out of order. John begins by saying grace and peace from the God who is not who was is and will be but the God who is why I think he does so for two reasons. For the believers in these churches who are at varying levels struggling with feeling abandoned by God or isolated for their beliefs in the present situation. Listen, John, it's good to know that God has always been. Thank you. It's good to know that God has always will be. That's good to know. But what I need to know now when I feel abandoned is that God is with me now. That's what I need to know, John. And to such believers turned on by... By, by other professing Christians, by progressive Christians, tempted to believe that God has forgotten them, comes the thundering promise that not only God was, not only that he will be, but God is. To borrow the title from Francis Schaefer, this is the God who is there, the God who's here. So the first reason John starts out of order, I think, is because the pressing need of the hour of these churches is to know the ancient God and returning God is the God who's with them. He's the God who is. But the second reason has to do with a biblical illusion, And one of the best ways to discern illusions from John is by looking at the cross-references you have in your Bible. Now, they're not inspired But the editors are making a good attempt to show you this comes before. So if you look in your Bible, if you look in your Bible at verse four of the God who, of the God who is, there's a footnote. Do you see it in your Bible? Don't look at me for a second. You look, I want you to see there's a footnote there in your Bible and it probably says Exodus 3.15. And then I'd go, I need to go Exodus 3.15 to see how this plays in. And that Greek expression here of the God who is reflects the same expression back in Exodus 3.15 of the God who says, I am. Do you remember that scene? Moses faced the uncertainty of dealing with Pharaoh and all the power of the state behind him. A power we know was energized by the dragon himself to kill all baby boys. So Moses needs assurance from God and the face of life-threatening state power. By what name do you expect me to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go? By whose authority will I come? And God says to Moses in Exodus 3, 14, say to them, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. So as the Bible ends, and his churches are facing the terror of Roman emperors, energized by the dragon as much as Pharaoh was before, they get, beloved, we get the same assurance that Moses himself got as he faced suffering. The promise of the I Am's very presence with us. Grace and peace from the I Am. Grace and peace from the God of Moses, the one who is what you always need him to be, the God who is I am. So we have in Exodus 3.15, John alluding to, to, this, to this, and it's not simply a name he's alluding to, but the promise of God himself. That God says, I am the eternal now. I am the eternal am. And as I've always been with you, and I always will be, I always am. I am is showing you grace and peace. In the face of cultural pressure, you can hear and heed God's word because of the promise of the I am himself. But not only the presence of the I am, But the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to trace all that down again. We teased it out earlier. But we can hear and heed because the Holy Spirit comes to us with sevenfold fullness of power and wisdom. Grace and peace from that Spirit who rested on the second person of the Godhead to you. But third. The Trinitarian presence appears to us in God, the Holy Spirit, and third, in the person and work of Christ, verse 5. John describes Christ's character, which is what we'll look at this week largely in his work next week. As to his character, he is, verse 5, described with three things. Christ is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Let's think about those three things. The theme of witness looms large in Revelation. John already introduced himself a few verses earlier as I am, I have given testimony. It's the same word. In fact, down in verse 9, this word witness is translated as testimony. John is exiled in Patmos because of his Testimony for Jesus Christ. His testimony about Jesus Christ. He, he's not talking about, can I get up and share a testimony? He's talking about a legal testimony that you give in court. I tell promise to tell the truth, hold truth, so help me truth, so help me God. He's talking about legal testimony that you give. And John is saying that not even the threat of exile made me change my testimony, my witness about Christ. In time... This word, witness or testimony, refers not only to the actions of Christians, but to Christians themselves, for they were witnesses so much so that they were called martyrs. That's the word here, even unto death. Not even death could make them change their testimony, their legal witness. And now as these churches are facing rising social pressure, And some of them are facing worse because we're told in chapter 2.13 that Antipas, a church member, has already died in Pergamum as a result of being a faithful witness to death for Jesus. So John opens now this book with an unveiling of Christ saying, I want you to look at Christ who's giving you grace and peace. I want you to know he is the faithful witness, the faithful martyr. With you is one who has already gone through it for you so that you can go through it and live. There is in our culture, I don't know how to say her name, I've heard it said two ways, B-A-R-I, Barry Weiss, Barry Weiss, who was, a, who was a writer for the New York Times. She's written of late that she thinks in our culture, I think she's right, there is an epidemic of cowardice in our culture. And I think men are suffering the worst from it. We have renamed our cowardice as compassion so that we feel better about it. The red dragon has changed himself into an angel of light. He's painted the vice of cowardice with the colors of compassion, and we're congratulating ourselves for being in awe of the painting. But men in particular, not only, not only, but men in particular are being emasculated by our culture shamed by society, and so embarrassed to be men that one of the rising ways that men get affirmations in our culture is by going transgender. See the book of Boys and Men by a Brookings Institute scholar, Richard Reeves, whose solutions not everybody agrees with, but few are denying his research. But regardless of who it is that needs the courage, The church is naturally fearful of real pressure who can even in the office and at work and in the restaurant self-censor and self-edit your speech at work and in the restaurant comes a reminder of Jesus Christ. The faithful witness is among you. He made a good confession before Pilate. First Timothy 613 with you is the one who's already gone through it for you. So have courage. Look at your faithful witness. And how can you possibly give up on this one who made a good fe- confession for you before Pilate? You're not going to give up on Jesus who never gave up on you, are you? You're not going to do that. So Christ is not only the model for Christian courage and witness, but the motivation of our witness until the very end because he's the faithful witness. But Christ is not only the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, we hear firstborn almost uniquely in biological categories. So the Mormons and others imply that Jesus is a created being. After all, it says he's firstborn. But being firstborn in the Bible doesn't finally refer to your biological status, but to your rank and to your privilege. We might, always, we, we might say they're going around acting like they're firstborn with all this stuff. Well, that's kind of it without doing this in the Bible. It's kind of like you're the important one. You are the firstborn, you have the rank, the privileges, all the inheritance would have been yours. So in Psalm 89, 27, God sings about King David in this way, I will appoint David as my firstborn, the exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, David, of course, is not literally God's firstborn. But as the firstborn was used in that day, and the firstborn had the priority, the preeminency of rank and privilege, the right to rule, so David is my supreme firstborn son. But now as the Bible ends, and David's been dead for a long time, now John brings back that very image and says, Now Jesus, as a descendant of David, is heir to that promise in Psalm 89. John calls Jesus God's Davidic firstborn. Can I put it this way? Jesus is God's firstborn firstborn. The firstborn par excellence. So with a clear allusion to David as the firstborn, John now now hails Jesus as the ultimate Davidic king, the final king who in the words of Psalm 89, who indeed is the highest of the kings of the earth. So great indeed is Jesus as the firstborn. So great is his preeminence and priority that he rules even over death itself. He's the firstborn over death from the dead. And the only way you call Jesus a firstborn from the dead is if there will be others who will rise from the dead. There's not a first unless there were others. And indeed, blessed are those who die in the Lord for when they follow Christ, the faithful witness into death, They will also follow him in and out the other side because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of many to come. And Christ, this faithful witness unto death, this firstborn over death is, of course, now John says, what I'm trying to tell you is he's the ruler now of the kings of the earth, Caesar and Herod and and, and Pilate. And Biden and Putin and Kim Jong-un are all energized by the old serpent, dragon, in varying levels in some ways. They're all earthly rulers. But only Jesus is truly King of kings and Lord of lords. Only Jesus is the supreme ruler, the master of commander of the earth and all kings of the earth. And as they, Jesus said to Pilate, they, Jesus said, have no power at all except it were given to you by God the Father. He's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. So as churches face social pressure and the possibility of death comes, here comes an unveiling of Christ as a faithful witness who unlocked the door of death from the inside and then kicked it open to emerge as the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So I'm telling you, blessed are all those who hear and keep this word of this God, Father, and Holy Spirit. In the face of suffering... Hear and heed the word of God because of Trinitarian promise of grace and peace. Hear and heed the word of God because the promise of his Trinitarian presence, of the God who was and is and is to come, of the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth, the sevenfold spirit of God. Now listen, can I try to put this into an application for us, a few applications? Because if you go back to it and you think, "What was the original audience facing?" We don't know everything, but we do know, we do know they're facing death. That's a pretty big fear. But along with death and all opposition, there are many fears, but maybe in the middle of it, it's likely to say they've got the fear of shame and alienation. The fear of death, shame and alienation, the fear of shame of being exposed of not being good enough, the fear of shame of being evaluated and then passed over. The fear of shame will make you deeply angry or really afraid. And we might start to change the way that we believe or the way that we act to avoid shame. I don't want anybody to see me. I don't want anybody to notice me. So I'm just going to. It's why we don't witness. We're afraid of the shame. It's why we exaggerate. We want to be seen as better. It's why we lie. We don't want to be seen as bad as we are. It's why we're afraid people might see me as I really really am, and I don't want them to see me this way. That's the fear of shame. And until you see how the power and pressure of shame works in your life and our church, you can never address it. And it doesn't take much more to think that among the other things these seven churches face, as they face the fear of shame, of pressure to conform and lighten up and to give up, because the shame of holding on to Christ and identifying with His Word and saying, I actually believe that verse in the Bible, the shame of that's too great, so you let go. That's shame. And it's powerful. Along with being The fear of being shamed is the fear of being alone, of being alienated, of being not like everybody else. That's how peer pressure works. You can read psychological studies, sociologists study. Nobody wants to be the only one or the first one to do something or say something. But when the first person stands up and says, should we be doing that? Then everybody else. Nobody wants to be the first. You don't want to be alone. You don't want to be isolated and alienated. Whether you're an adult or a kid. The pressure not to be the only one or the first one to say something is immense. Being the only one, being abandoned, is a fearful thing. And these these, these seven churches, these believers are starting to stand out in their culture for all the wrong reasons. The fear of not being promoted, of, of losing a job, of being alienated, of being alone at work. Nobody talks to you. Now, here's what I think is happening with this greeting in light of that audience. He, he's giving us reasons, in spite of the threat of death and shame and, and alienation, reasons to keep clinging to the words. He, here's the, first, the fear of shame, of being exposed, is met by the promise of grace and peace that covers you and fills you. A grace and peace not from your boss and not from the coworker or the judge, but the fear of shame is met with a promise of grace and peace from God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And second, the fear of being alone, of being rejected or alienated for believing in God and his word is met by the promise of a Trinitarian community of love and empowerment. The fear of being alone is met by the promise of of the Godhead's presence and the fear of being shamed is being met by the promise of the Godhead's promise of grace and peace. So the promise of Trinitarian favor is greater than any honor you might get or any honor you might lose. Now, do you believe that? That the promise of Trinitarian favor is greater than any honor you could get or lose. And the promise... The promise of the presence of the Godhead is greater. It's greater than being alone. How can you give in to the fear of being alone if God has promised to be with you? How can you give in to the fear of being ashamed if you're clothed with grace and favor? You can't be truly shamed. You can't be truly abandoned. Yes, you feel like it. That's why God has anointed, commanded Sunday, a day every week you get together and you hear people singing, reminding you, God is real and Jesus is alive and he's reigning and I'm not alone. And every week you come to hear this reminder. Therefore, blessed is the one who keeps my words and heeds them into the end. Now, my son is reading a tale of two cities. Now I know you know the end. We all know the end just like you know what's going to happen in Creed 3. Right? You know what's going to happen. The last punch 12 round 1 2 done. no 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 no. You know that. But for a moment would you let yourself be taken in by the story so that you can be taken in by this story again? Sydney Carton and Charles Dunay love the same woman. But that woman she marries Charles and not Sydney. By the end of the book, they arrest Charles, they throw him in the prison, and in the morning, he's going to be executed whoosh, off with his head. Now, how do you suppose Sidney responds now that the woman who rejected him for a man who's about to die is about, how do you think he'll respond? In modern terminology, we'd say, I kept the receipt, you got what you deserved. But Sidney, who looks enough like Charles, sneaks into the prison, he knocks him out, he changes clothes with him, and his friends carry him out to safety. He puts on the man's clothes, he spends the night in prison, and in the morning, Charles is set to die, but it's going to be Sydney under the blade of the gu- guillotine in the place of the man who took the girl. The next morning, he's met by a maid who's walking up to the guillotine as well. She walks up to the man that she thinks is Charles. She asks him to comfort him. Here's what, Here's how Dickens puts it. Will you let me hold your hand? I'm not afraid, but I am a little weak, and it'll give me more courage if you let me hold your hand. But then as she looks up, she realizes it's not Charles. Her look of doubt, Dickens says, turns to a look of astonishment. And she says, oh, are you dying for him, she whispers. And he hushes her because he doesn't want to be found out. Yes, and also for her and her child also. Then knowing what's about to happen, this maid realizes what's about to happen. She begs Sidney to comfort her again Oh, will you let me hold your hand, your brave hand, stranger? Will you let me hold your brave hand, stranger? Now listen, now listen. If a maid's heart found courage to face death at just the thought of somebody dying, a stranger dying for Charles, if her own heart is full of calm at seeing the courage of a stranger not dying for her but for somebody else, What would happen to that maid's heart if someone actually took hold of her hand and died in her place? Do you see? That's what Christ has done as the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. And what effect then would it have on your courage, on our courage as a church, if we really came to believe that the Godhead is in league for our deliverance and for our endurance? That Jesus at the cross didn't simply take my hand, but he took my flesh. And he died in my place. And he came out the door of death the other side. Do you see? Hear and heed. Hear and heed the word of Christ. Because the promise of his grace and peace is greater than the shame. And the promise of his presence is greater than the threat of death itself. Oh, blessed are all those who keep and hear his words.